it's a wide thing. It's a very disparate thing to connect is the wartime economies versus the Ethereum monetary policy. But when I see the juxtaposition of Ethereum securing its global economic system for $1.4 million over 40 days versus the United States and Russia and Ukraine and Euro all going head to head over how to secure their own economies and it's costing them trillions and trillions of dollars a month or whatever, the juxtaposition here I think is insane. It's just a matter of time before people realize that. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io, Circle, and FTX, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Monday, October 31st, Halloween. For many of you, my guest today needs no introduction. David Hoffman is one of the co-founders and main voices of Bankless. Before we get into that, however, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review, or if you want to dive deeper into the conversation, come join us on The Breakers Discord. You can find a link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdown pod. Also a disclosure, as always, in addition to them being a sponsor of the show, I also work with FTX. All right, friends, David Hoffman is one of the co-founders and main voices of Bankless, which is building a little mini crypto media empire that may not be so mini for long. Bankless focuses primarily, although not exclusively, on Ethereum, and in this conversation, we talk about reflections on the last bull market, the ETH merge, and the future of NFTs. David, welcome to The Breakdown. How you doing, man? NLW, it's good to be back, my man. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad to have you here. Um, so we were just chatting about uh, uh, about life and uh, and 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 what we were going to chat about, and you know, kind of what I thought it would be fun to have you back on the show is just to go, to to kind of get the um, the David take on where we are in the cycle, cycle narratives. You know, like you kind of have, I think you share with me this sort of um, interest in both the discrete and the specific, but also these kind of big picture questions. And so where I wanted to start, I guess, you know. I, I'm I'm positive, or I'm, I'm mostly positive that, that most of my audience will know you. But for those who might not be familiar, um, just to give a give a super quick intro to Bankless, uh, and then I also love, uh, you know, you describe yourself in your Twitter bio as a crypto culture anthropologist. I'd love to hear just what that what that specifically means to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm David Hoffman, co-founder of Bankless. Bankless, uh, big media organization, largely focusing on Ethereum, but also just crypto more broadly. Uh, trying to teach people how to live a life without banks. Um, but banks are, of course, just the start of it. Uh, banks are really just like the archetype for an intermediary. Uh, so what does a world look like when we have more individual power and individual control and individual influence over our own lives? Uh, and that kind of leads into the whole crypto culture anthropologist thing. I think the thing that I specifically focus on the most uh, like my like little niche in this broad crypto industry is the relationship between culture and code in uh, the way that if we design these systems to do this thing, downstream net effects of that are this kind of culture emerges out of this space. Uh, and so the very distant things, culture and code, are actually um, very much in the same spot, in the same place in this world of crypto. And so I try and un unpack that the most and talk about the ways that culture impacts code, that code impacts culture, and why it's important to be considering culture in the first place when we talk about these crypto economic systems that we all operate by. Love it. Well, we're definitely going to get into to, to some of that today. I have a few few kind of choice little nuggets there. Um, but I, where I want to start is uh, almost like a really big picture of the last bull market 
And and what I wanted to ask, because I haven't had a chance to ask you this, is sort of how did it uh, did like did it play out as you would have expected going into it, uh, and and if not, where did it diverge? Yeah, and I remember starting my content production career during the bear market last time, and it was the bear market last time was really the Bitcoiners and the Ethereans just going at it. And that was what crypto was back then. There was no other ecosystem beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum that really made it through the 2018 bear market. And so, like, how did the, did the uh, cycle go according to plan? Did it go according to how I thought it would? Uh, in some respects, absolutely. And then in other respects, like, holy hell, absolutely not. Um, some of the things, a lot of the things that happened that I think went exactly how I kind of thought it would, would, would it be real Ethereum's maturation of starting to embody some of the best of Bitcoin while still keeping a lot of the best of what Ethereum is, it is. Uh, and so the solidification of the Ethereum monetary policy, the, the, uh, more coherent vision of Ethereum as an ecosystem. I think like a lot of Ethereum gained a lot of ground versus Bitcoin in this cycle. And I think that that victory really happened very early in the cycle. And you kind of saw that because during the 2018 to 2020 bear market, it was Bitcoiners and Ethereans yelling at each other on crypto Twitter. And then as soon as the bull market happened, like the communities just diverged. We just started paying attention to our own things. Uh, and we, we, ship, we finally shipped proof of stake recently, EIP 1559, all of these things that really solidified Ether as an asset. What blindsided me and many others in the Ethereum ecosystem was the rise of alt layer ones. Uh, that came as much to the surprise of everyone here. Did not really expect. We expected the fight to be against like you know Bitcoin or the big Bitcoin versus Ethereum, and turns out it was the fight ver uh, was between Ethereum and and uh, Ethereum copycats that just compromised on decentralization. Uh, and so that was the the new thing that really threw me and a lot of people others for a surprise that it wasn't actually like is it DeFi versus sound money? It's more like centralized DeFi versus decentralized DeFi. Uh, and that was a, a fight that we weren't really prepared for. Um, but that was towards the end of the bull market. Uh, and now here we are once again in a bear market, uh, taking a, a time to reflect upon how we got here. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. I, I agree entirely that um, the, <laughs> the there's a lot of time for bullshitting in the 2018-2019 bear cycle, where it's like, mm -hmm. the fuck else you have to do? There are some people that, you know, th to be fair, there were some people sort of uh, researching harbinger taxes and like all these right. sort of you know like getting getting really deep but then there are a lot of us on twitter who are just you know being being assholes but i feel like the divergence almost started to happen i think one of the things we don't talk about that much is that i think it's pretty inarguable to me that the crypto bear markets or the crypto bull market specifically started to take shape with DeFi summer, right? Like that right. was yes. uh, the, the kind of the reemergence, even though there wasn't enough of a kind of generalized bull market for us to really consider that. It was very clear that that was a different kind of crypto specific thing that was drawing in new energy and excitement. And then that sort of proceeded into obviously everything that happened around the great monetary inflation thesis and sort of mm -hmm. Bitcoin finding its own kind of narrative space and, uh, you know, in, in the context of post COVID policies. And then there was even more divergence, though, in terms of, you know, splitting off into kind of NFTs and things like that. Like It, it was really fascinating the extent to which this bear mar or bull market rather was one in which although, you know, you sort of do have this surface level perma conversation, there's a lot more time just spent within sort of these ecosystems on the things that people were really excited about building.
Yeah, 100%. And the DeFi Summer 2020 was one of the big reasons I, I take to people as evidence as to why you need to stick around during the bear market. Because the people that were playing in DeFi Summer 2020 games knew that the 2021 bull market was inevitable. They, these people saw the bull, the incoming mania a year ahead of everyone else. And that was really their opportunity to capitalize on because the DeFi bull market, the DeFi Summer shenanigans, airdrop season, yield farming was like the show before the show. Um, I think another thing that blindsided a lot of Ethereum people and just like the people that were stuck around during 2018 to 2020 was NFTs. We always thought that like, oh, this thing called Maker, oh, Uniswap, Compound and Aave, DYDX. This is clearly the future of finance. This is clearly a step order function improvement on money and finance. This is clearly where the next bull market is going to be. And it kind of was for 2020, but the NFT bull market just put the DeFi bull market to absolute shame. Uh, and that's actually really where you saw uh, kind of what you what you alluded to, like the the schisms in crypto, where the DeFi crypto Twitter circles versus the NFT crypto Twitter circles, like those are non-overlapping Venn diagrams. Like the NFT side of things, first off, is way bigger, uh, and and like there's just like two different communities here at this point in time. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I actually, I think it's for those who kind of traverse between the two, there's definitely something refreshing about it, like <laughs> about a lot of kids just kind of sitting around vibing, even if it was like, yeah. if it got maybe it, it, it's sin was instead of aggression, it replaced it with maybe like a little bit too much like early morning Twitter spaces uh, expounding on like the secrets of the universe because your your profile picture went up. But like, by and large, is sort of a, uh, it is such a different thing. And I do think that there's, you know, we're, we're recording recording this now as yet another moment of sort of a generative, like a, an NFT community generating, you know, almost upon itself kind of without, without warning that's separate from even the other NFT communities with the Reddit NFT stuff going mm -hmm. on. It's, a, it's, it's fascinating that there's, there's clearly something here that people like if they are not kind of presented, depending on how they're presented it, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think this is also indicative of really where crypto is as a whole is that we have, this has always been the promise of crypto is to embed itself into different corners of the internet, more or less invisibly. Like it's not a NFT, it's a digital collectible. Uh, your wallet is an Ethereum wallet that you don't actually have to worry about. Uh, and this has always been the promise of crypto is to find its ways into consumers' lives, into different businesses, to enable them to do things that they weren't able to do prior, uh, but without really having to force that person into being a crypto person or like manage their own private keys or do all these things. Uh, and so like crypto is just like, you know, like a virus, just fitting itself into the corners of the internet more and more these days. You know, it's funny. There's been a lot of um, tongue-in-cheek kind of lighthearted making fun of the digital collectible rebrand, but digital collectible is a much more accurate rebrand relative to what, like, it's just like, it, it is actually just a better marketing scheme for what they are. Now, NFT, obviously, like, it, it, once you get into it, what it can mean is obviously much broader than digital collectibles, but they are actually, in fact, describing what the, what they're offering, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. Like NFT is going to be like the technical way to describe this that encompasses many more use cases. I think digital collectibles is going to be the way that we use uh, to describe these things in ways that I think are just going to be far more relevant to use cases that we talk about, like gaming, for example, we'll use digital collectibles there. Uh, we won't use the word NFT. Um, and just a, a lot of these like just broad consumer applications, uh, things that generally don't violate securities laws will probably use digital collectibles. Yeah.
Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. It's, it's fascinating. When you think about uh, just hanging on NFTs for one for one more moment, when you think about kind of you know everything that's new goes through a a hype cycle, uh, tries a bunch of stuff. Some stuff looks ridiculous in retrospect, and then there was something underlying it that was actually powerful. Um, we don't like to talk about it, but I think you can make this argument even for ICOs, where there was clearly something powerful about the money coordination mechanism that that it unleashed. And clearly, there was something about the demand that, that it tapped into. What is your sense for you know, looking back on kind of this particular wave, the first mainstream wave of NFTs, what sort of stands out as this is going to be a thing versus other things where you feel like they might kind of fade into uh, explore, new explorations, let's say? Yeah, I think actually I have a ton of thoughts on this. I, I think we can use the history of the crypto industry as a, a as a guiding lesson here. Um, the first wave of NFTs, the first one to really come back the from where it existed in the first place, CryptoPunks, which were born in 2018. CryptoPunks were the first NFTs to, to come back. And that was like Bitcoin coming back on its second bubble, right? Like, you know, bubbles don't, bubbles don't come back. That's not what a bubble is. Uh, so CryptoPunks had their first second bubble in the NFT mania. And that's what really triggered the whole rest of these NFTs. And so we had this uh, collectible NFT mania, these things that are just pictures, like monkey pictures, crypto punks. They're just things that you collect and they're kind of like non-productive assets. They're non-productive digital collectibles. In the same way that crypto industry started off with Bitcoin, this non-productive bearer asset that is a store of value, the I think the NFT industry is starting off there too. And it will progress. You, you, and you can only have so much of those. There's only so much room for a non-productive store of value asset, kind of like the, the gold standard of, of the asset, right? This is why people call CryptoPunks like the Bitcoin of, of NFTs. Um, I think all future NFTs are going to be much more productive, as in it's going to take a team or an organization to instill some sort of utility into these things. What do these NFTs do? What do they uh, unlock for me? And this is really just the promise of uh, kind of NFTs at large as it relates to creators, whether you're like Justin Blau, the DJ, or you're uh, some musician or some artist, you have NFTs and it's going to unlock some sort of community for you, or it's going to give your community some sort of privilege. Uh, and I think this is a uh, something that is repeatable and replicatable for many companies, many organizations, very many communities to make NFTs that make a moat around the in-group or an out-group and give the in-group privileges and access uh, just by rights of being a community member. And this is something that you could see repeated for any sort of community that exists, whether it's Web 2 or Web 3 or beyond. Want to keep more profits when trading? Get the best possible prices and trade with 50% lower fees on Nexo Pro. The new spot and futures trading platform uses aggregated liquidity of over 3,000 order books collected from multiple sources. Utilizing the complete Nexo suite allows you to earn interest and borrow funds as you wait for the next trade setup. Visit pro.nexo.io. That's pro.nexo.io and sign up today. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe, and efficient way to send money around the globe. USDC is always redeemable one-to-one -one for US dollars and has over $45 billion in circulation as of October 13th, 2022. 
Plus, Circle posts weekly reserve reports and monthly attestations of reserve capital, letting users know that USDC is safe, transparent, and compliant with regulations. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. The breakdown is sponsored by FTX US. FTX US is the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets with up to 85% lower fees than competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. One of the largest exchanges in the US, FTX US is also the only leading exchange that supports both Ethereum and Solana NFTs. When you trade NFTs on FTX, you pay no gas fees. Download the FTX app today and use referral code BREAKDOWN to support the show. I noticed the other day that I can't remember if it was the other day or weeks ago at this point, but you had mentioned uh, that you'd finally gotten music NFT pilled. And uh, and it's interesting because this, this is um, when I first kind of started talking about NFTs on the show last year, this was the context of, you know, for we're in the heuristic of big picture power shifts. It's basically exactly kind of the way that you had framed it, which is that the music industry is so ruthlessly exploitative that it doesn't necessarily take that much for this to be massively disruptive. And I think for me that the the big thing what why it sort of makes such sense to me is almost from just a pure market perspective where if you are a creator of some kind you're you know uh, god bless patreon for existing and, and it, at least introducing the idea of sort of fan supported things but there's no way in the patreon model really to express extreme preference specifically of right. the type that someone like a super fan of a musician is right if you are both wealthy and the biggest fan of dj x or dj y in the world it's not easy to, to pay as much as you would for the experiences you would like, right? Sure, you could follow them on tour, but if you're rich, you're probably busy. And, you know, maybe you can, there's some kind of elite experience one off. Whereas, you know, having this sort of uncapped uh, thing really that, that sort of trades on the market that can be as, as valuable as the fans make it, it just makes sense. It's like there's that, there's been a market gap for that, you know? I mean, even before Patreon was even worse, it was just, it was literally a concert ticket, you know, uh, maybe a backstage meet and greet. And uh, and a CD is all you had to do. So I, you know, I I think it's a it's definitely an area where um, again the, the at various points I wouldn't be surprised if now and in the future the hype runs ahead of itself. But I don't think at the end of the day that it, it, it diminishes what uh, is likely to happen, kind of even on a on a smaller scale. The the word fidelity definitely comes to mind, as in these NFTs, these tokens. Tokens allow for a more high fidelity relationship between fans and artists, you know, consumers and creators. The reason why is because, you know, tokens are little vehicles, little places to insert code into. And if you can imagine something, then you can put that into a token and you can make different supplies of tokens. You can make different form factors of tokens, but it really gives creators the tools to create something that is exactly what their fans want. And it gives their fans the voice and the expression to return back to the creators and say, hey, we like that. Uh, give us more of that. And so whether that is like 10 tokens for 10 fans or 100 tokens for 100 fans or, you know, it gives you as an artist or a creator so many different like levers to pull on that they never had access to before. So many different tools of power to be able to do things that Spotify will never let you do. Uh, it'll give you direct access to who values you the most. Uh, you can be much more surgical about it. Uh, and so this is kind of why I've always considered like the the relationship between NFTs and creators and their fan base as some sort of 
spark that can create some revolution in, in specifically digital culture, some new renaissance in digital culture, because uh, it's specifically the digital artists that are really uniquely enabled by NFTs. Uh, and so this is why I wrote this article called The Digital Culture Revolution, which I actually uh, think that you re- uh, read one time on the on the breakdown. Yeah, I think I did, actually. Yep. Let's talk about the merge for a minute. How, like, how has it gone relative to both your and the community's expectations? And I think that can be from a technical level, from a, a monetary kind of you know structural level, or it can be from a narrative level. Sure. Well, the merge went completely flawlessly. Uh, I, I think I was expecting a few hiccups, but even the even the biggest hiccups that I kind of was expecting were uh, not ever going to be that big. And the merge executed even more beautifully than that. Um, it happened during a bear market, which is always like coming out of a, a massive bull market. It's always a little bit bittersweet. It's like, damn, could you have imagined if the merge had happened during the bull market? Uh, but it is better that it's better for the foundations of everything that the merge happened during the bear market when we can be quiet and just like let this thing run for a little bit. Uh, we have this fantastic new website that almost everyone in Ethereum is looking at called ultrasound.money, which is just the analytics platform for Ether, the asset. And while we started issuing Ether post-merge because the, the demand for Ethereum block space wasn't sufficiently high to burn burn Ether, we are actually almost back down to the place where we were when we merged. Uh, so since the merge 41 days ago, Ethereum has issued a net 1,000 Ether. Uh, so that is about $1.4 million. So Ethereum has paid $1.4 million in costs to secure itself over 41 days, making it by far the most efficient blockchain that exists. Uh, and I, I don't think really the industry understands the magnitude of this me- metric. The, the security efficiency ratio is the most important metric in crypto. How much does it cost for you to secure your blockchain? And if you can get that as close to zero as possible, you have an efficient blockchain. Uh, well, and this is in stark contrast to while we are watching these wartime fiat economies of the United States, the European Union, uh, Japan, Russia, throw their currencies at each other in, in a race to who can devalue their currency the most sometimes sometimes with actual straight up warfare we have this wartime this wartime economy where our economies are devaluing uh because uh of the the just the warring nature of nation states meanwhile we have this ethereum system that goes to no wars and secures itself with minimal costs uh and so well one set of uh one category of money fiat currencies is losing value we have this different category of monies which is crypto assets which don't have to deal with any of this stuff so the contrast here it's it's a wide thing. It's a very uh, dis- disparate things to connect is the wartime economies versus the Ethereum monetary policy. But when I see the juxtaposition of Ethereum securing its global economic system for $1.4 million over 40 days versus the United States and Russia and Ukraine and Euro all going head to head over how to secure their own economies and it's costing them trillions and trillions of dollars a day, a month or whatever. Uh, the juxtaposition here, I think, is, is insane. Um, it's just a matter of time before people realize that. Yeah, I think, I mean, maybe to try to, to bring those two things even a little bit closer, just for the, the people who are, you know, skeptical in the audience or, or, or rolling their eyes. I, I am, Yeah, please help me here. <laughs> I like big, I like big comparisons too. So I, I'm totally down with it. I think, you know, so for me, part of the uh, excitement about the crypto space in general has always been, you know, uh, 
not the sort of overly simplistic narrative of Bitcoin or or any of these any sort of asset like this as inflation hedge per se. It's more the opt out of the monetary system that you happen to have been born into. And that for the first time, there's these sort of things that operate natively on a, a, a in the internet world um, that you can partially or fully opt into that get you out of, even if just in part, that the the sort of where, wherever you are. I think that what part of what you're pointing out is, uh, or an implicit uh, or an implication of part of what you're pointing out is that, you know, we we speak about that in the context of places like Argentina a lot of the times, or you know, Turkey experiencing you know kind of rampant inflation. Um, but the the reality of the sort of the the broader system is that there are certain constraints and certain norms of how things are built, and I don't think you have to be sort of. Um, you don't have to necessarily uh, compare Ethereum as as the example you used and the economy of Russia one to one to understand why having this thing that exists separately and outside of that world economy or this world economy is incredibly valuable for individual citizens wherever they happen to be. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's simply a matter of like the Ethereum priority is to secure Ethereum, and the United States uh, priority is to be dominant. Uh, and the United States priorities will sacrifice the value of the U.S. dollar in order to make sure that it, it has supremacy, uh, and that comes at a cost of holders. That comes at a cost of bondholders who have to t- bear the brunt of inflation. Uh, where in contrast, Ethereum, again, its number one job is to secure Ethereum. And if it's doing a good job, then holders of Ether actually are rewarded. And we're seeing that in the 0.008, oh, excuse me, 0.007% yearly inflation rate that Ethereum has had uh, since the merge. And if this trend continues, this two and a half week trend continues, it'll actually start to be net deflationary soon enough. So one of the things that, you know, I end up reading a lot of analyst notes and stuff like that from from TradFi, and uh, there's sort of two things that ra- have rung out pretty clearly. One is surprise at how, uh, how sort of um, without hitch the, the merge went. And then second was a surprise that um, it didn't affect the price more. I thought that was such a such a, a crazy thing to be surprised about in the context that we're in. I mean, also, you know, not to make a one-to-one comparison here either, but like, the having is always like this as well. Anytime you have sort of these these events that sort of change fundamentals, kind of structures of the economics, it's not like they show up the next day, right? You know, a, as a trade. That's just not the, the nature of it. It's a waiting game, yeah. But anyways, I I want to I want to move to something else though because this is obviously a big thing going on in your life. Talk to us about the the Tornado Cash uh, suit that that you're a part of now. Uh, yeah. So okay, there's not too much I can I can talk about, but I can just talk about the the the, the what went down, right? You can abstract it and, and not do, not do too much on your particular piece of the pie. Yeah. So uh, I I and many like me who have their Ethereum their Ethereum addresses on their Twitter handles uh, got dusted, as in somebody sent point one ether to me and many 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 other people from the Tornado Cash uh, address, uh, according to. The Department of the Treasury and the OFAC rules, that makes me in violation of OFAC, which is a very serious offense. You don't violate OFAC. Uh, I was not in control of whether I violated OFAC. And I also fundamentally disagree with the concept that a smart contract on Ethereum can even be illegal in the first place. Uh, And so since someone has made me a criminal outside of my own control by interacting with a tornado cash address, the illegal tornado cash address, uh, as a result of that, I had to file a form uh, about this illicit funds that I received 
uh, and like detailing it all. I had to put it in a special wallet. Now it's like uh, firewalls from the rest of my money. Uh, and I had to file this form, send it to the treasury. And now I have to do that process every single year for the rest of my life. So just to reaffirm, it's like, hey, uh, treasury, still still not a criminal. Uh, st- and, and the treasury has said that they will deprioritize people that got dusted in terms of going after them legally. They use the word deprioritize, <laughs> but they did not say, oh yeah, we're not going to go after the people that illegally engaged with a tornado cash address. We're just going to deprioritize them. It was wild. This is the IRS saying you're low on our audit list. Yes. But on yes. our audit list. <laughs> but still on the audit list. Yeah, right. Uh, and so as a result of that, um, and with much support of Coin Center, uh, all of the support, basically, uh, I've decided to sue the uh, Department of Treasury and Janet Yellen for making a neutral piece of technology illegal uh, and injuring me in my time that, that takes me to do this form every single year for the rest of my life. Uh, and so rather than spending uh, 30 minutes once a year for the rest of my life, I decided to sue the Department of Treasury. In no way uh, is this for sure, but I do see a path where the overreach of this particular set of sanctions end up being seen as one of the best things that could have happened, A, because of getting crypto's guard up much faster than it might have otherwise been. I think there's been a market shift in the tenor of the conversation uh, subsequent to the Tornado Cash uh, sanctions. Two, in terms of creating a context to go have the battle in courts, this is something that I feel like over the last year, crypto has really realized that it's just going to have to avail itself of the legal system and not in an antagonistic way, just in a like, this is where decisions are going to get made and, and just waiting around for everything to be kind of regulatorily determined is not likely to, to, to work. Again, not not even contentiously, like weirdly, the, you know, Grayscale suit against the SEC, I think in, you know, it's antagonistic in the sense that, you know, Grayscale feels like there's a, a significant problem there, but it's really just trying to get clarity. Yep. That is not available to it currently that, that will. Um, but then I think third, also in terms of, uh, you know, the specific reckoning, not just the legal precedent as relates to whether OFAC can sanction a protocol or a smart contract, but also uh, teaching the courts and this system how to handle a fundamentally new phenomenon, i.e. a public address where you can receive something without your will, right? These are all kind of new things that it has to grapple with. You know, again, like I said, nothing is predetermined. It's, It's impossible. It could go very badly, but it seems sort of like, so egregious in some ways, in, in correctable ways, even within the f- the framework or the paradigm of OFAC as currently established, that I think that there's there's room for optimism there. Yeah, and there's no way I would undergo this uh, suing of the government without a very high degree of sure of confidence that we would actually win this case. Uh, and I, I think a large part of the crypto industry. At least, like the very talented legal minds are kind of just like chomping at the bit to have the opportunity to do something like this uh, because we haven't had we we don't haven't had any other doors open up to get clarity or get good regulation other than suing people. Like Congress hasn't done anything. Uh, we haven't pushed. We haven't pushed some sort of formal crypto bill through Congress that we actually like. Uh, and so, really, the the only actual doors that have opened to us are are through lawsuits. Uh, but if that's what we need to do, like we'll do that too. Like crypto people are fighters. We're going to defend our territory, and no one cares about our territory better than we do. 
Uh, so we're very happy to take them to the courts. And we, we're very confident that we know our industry better than the government does because, you know, we live and breathe in it. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. And I, I'm excited to see what plays out with that. I, I will I will see, refrain from asking you more detailed questions, but uh, excited that you're taking it on. Um, as we sort of sort of round the corner and start to wrap up here, as you look out across the rest of however long this bear market is, what do you think is sort of most important for Ethereum? And then maybe same question, but for kind of crypto writ large. Yeah, I, I think when we hit the merge and the merge went through completely successfully and everyone was super stoked and then Ether went from $1,800 down to $1,200 as a result, as quote unquote as a result, people all kind of realized like, oh, this bear market is not going to be short. This is going to be long. Uh, I think that was a collective realization in that moment that this is not something that we are just going to bounce right out of. And so I think minds immediately turned to, all right, what do we need, what do we need to do? What do we need to build? Uh, and uh, of course, I focus on the Ethereum ecosystem um, most of all, simply because I think it upholds the, the values of this industry the best. Uh, and there are, are certain teams out there that are building solutions that if they if Ethereum had these things at the start of the bull market in 2020, 2021, the bull market would have looked completely differently. Um, Ethereum was not ready to scale to support the last bull market that happened. And as a result of that, many new newer chains came up that were much, uh, you know, shinier and spiffier. And now there's like this long tail of like alt layer ones like Aptos and Sui and Sway, uh, just all trying to do the whole like we are the super fast, shiny new blockchain game. Uh, if Ethereum had its layer two ecosystem with its app chain ecosystem on top of that, ready to go, uh, DYDX wouldn't have wanted to go off of Cosmos and people like uh, people who wanted to play in DeFi games wouldn't be complaining about Ethereum gas fees. Uh, and so they're like Optimism's got this OP stack, Optimism's bedrock, where we can have modular layer twos in the same way Ethereum is creating modular layer one. We can now have modular layer twos. Um, but this can this is more than just a layer two. This is like a uh, what people are probably familiar with layer three, but it's really more like this like tree structure that all comes down to Ethereum. And that's that's built with this like primitive called Optimism's OP stack, Optimism's bedrock. Uh, and all of a sudden we have this ability for people to make chains on chains on chains to the degree that they want. Uh, we also have uh, ZK rollups coming up, which uh, again, super technical, but and in a very simplified version, it ZK rollups produce the UX that we would expect crypto to have if we were coming from Web two, just as long as we build out like the applications and the things to do on top of them. Uh, and so in this in this bear market, I think the Ethereum community is just like ready to build out all of the structures, all of the platforms needed to host an entire bull market and not let that bull market go away because we lost the energy due to, uh, you know, an unsustainable mania. Uh, and so that, that's definitely what the Ethereum community is focused on. Uh, that goes from all the way from the protocol layer from EIP 4844, which allows rollups to turn on afterburners to actually allowing more rollups to occur so that building on Ethereum is the easiest place uh, to build. Uh, and that's kind of where I expect Ethereum to to leave this coming bear market is that uh, the the barriers for building on Ethereum is so incredibly low, you just won't consider anywhere else. I definitely agree that we've had this sort of, um, it, it always happens, but there's a slow acceptance process of, you know, of a bear market not turning around, you know, or not having sort of a specific catalyst, particularly, I mean, the, the, I think the thing that obviously makes this one different is the extent to which it is driven by much larger forces. Macro. Yeah. I think even within that though, 
once you sort of accept that that's the game, you kind of keep an eye on maybe what's happening with those macro forces. But it's still, it's not like the Fed starts to pivot and everything just rips to new all-time highs. I mean, I guess that's plausible or, or at least possible. But I do think that crypto is going to need its own narrative and real catalysts, even when the macro kind of realigns, like something to get people to come back in and get excited about other than just number going up, because presumably the number for everything is going to be going up at that time. Yeah, yeah. I I kind of expect if this Fed pivot does happen, then crypto might lag behind the stock market for a while, the traditional equities market. Maybe. I'm, not, I'm definitely not an expert. But I mean, people just feel hurt by crypto. Like retail's exhausted. They need time to like recharge and we need to build new things for them to get excited about. Um, and regardless of macro, building new things takes time. Um, however, it does seem to be like the golden age of building. Uh, the private markets are flush with cash. Like no team that has an idea can't find funding. Uh, and so the application layer development that's kind of going on beneath the scenes is at, at unprecedented levels in crypto's history. Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things that I, th- I find the most sort of optimism in as well is that, you know, coming off of the ICO boom, there was no money left. Nothing. For a variety of reasons, but uh, not least of which was that everyone kept their own money in their own token, you know, so the treasuries were warped, but there was nothing, right? It's it's such a different scenario here. And obviously, the, the you know, the, the money that is being plowed into new projects and, uh, and new things being developed is exactly what's sort of going to seed that next next round of, uh, of exciting projects. 100%. Well, David, uh, awesome to have you on the show. Um, we should definitely do this more often. Uh, I love getting your thoughts on, on where things are, but uh, you know, thanks for coming by. Oh, NLW, always happy to do it, my man. All right, guys, back to NLW here. There's a ton that we could discuss in this wrap-up, but I do want to hone in on this question of what we expect versus what we don't expect in bull markets. And in particular, how NFTs maybe demonstrated a model of how broader adoption might work, or what trade-offs have to be made for that broader adoption to happen. It is notable, as we discussed, that NFT communities didn't necessarily pick up or willingly accept or engage with the biases of crypto people who had been here for a cycle before. Instead, they developed their own mores, their own conversation points, and concentrated on what mattered to them. Now, as we discussed, we have a situation where millions of Reddit users have discovered digital collectibles without picking up any of the old norms or discussions of NFT Twitter. There are many in the crypto community who think that this obfuscation, this powered by crypto, this crypto inside but not apparent kind of version of crypto, is problematic. That if people don't understand exactly how to use private keys and wallets right away, and if they're not self-sovereign, if they're not bankless right away, that somehow they're doing it wrong. I'll only point out that the guy who started Bankless was here today talking about how these things provide on-ramps for people to get in. And maybe it's all part of a path that we have to go through. Anyways, I think that this idea of cultural anthropology and how it fits with crypto and what it tells us about crypto is fascinating and going to be more and more relevant in the years to come. For now, I want to say thanks one more time to David for being on the show, for Nexo.io, Circle and FTX for supporting the show, and of course, to you guys for listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.